Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brendan Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story Feathered Tigers, originally published in Edge in 1973. And we read it in the story collection, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. Before we get into it, I want to take a moment and let our listeners know who don't already support us on Patreon at Clay Temple Media that we covered a short story by Jorge Luis Borges called The Aleph. That was a really good time. That was an excellent story. And I hope it entices people to come on over and check us out on our Patreon page and see the kinds of great stories that we cover for our patrons. But if you like Borges, I can't recommend this story enough. Yeah, that was your story to pick. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, We had a blast doing that story. And it was so rich. There was so much going on there. Uh, I think we will end up doing more Borges in the the not too distant future. And of course, he's so important to Wolf's development as a writer. I'm excited to be doing Feathered Tigers today. I absolutely love this story that is basically all just a setup for a practical joke, but also deals with some pretty serious SF themes as we expect in a Wolf story. But I think most of all, I have a lot of nostalgia for this story because it was one that we practiced on when we were figuring out what the format of this show was going to be. And at the time that we selected this story to practice on, we picked it because it was a story that we knew we wouldn't get to for a long time. And now here we are. So I guess that means we've actually been doing this for a long time. Yeah, I remember reading this story during our practice episodes, the few that we did. And I loved it. Rereading it now was really awesome. I still love this story. I love the creatures that Wolf has created. And I'm really excited to be doing this again, but for real. Yeah. And I'll say just off the top that I think I noticed some things that I would not have noticed if we hadn't been doing this in chronological order, getting the whole sort of back catalog of Wolf, seeing him develop these themes, seeing what things he's interested in. There were definitely things that I had missed when we read this for the first time two years ago. But uh, I think on that note, uh, let's get into the recap. Quo, quo. A soft and blue creature who looks something like a child-sized rabbit is touring Cambodia in a sky yacht. The sky yacht is an intelligent machine that is giving Quoco information about the Mekong River, where we learn a war was fought for a long time by the sky yacht's masters. Quoco wonders why the sky yacht's masters have made machines that lie, why they've made intelligent machines that don't have to tell the truth. The sky out here reminds Quoquo, who is also a psychologist, that it is his job to figure that out. The sky yacht is taking Quoquo to Station 73, where more of Quoquo's kinds, these strange child-sized rabbit creatures, are engaged in their experiments and activities. This Skyot is awesome. It's a supersonic aircraft with retractable wings, something that can switch between being a rocket and being a plane, I, I, I guess, something like that. And it doesn't actually matter for the plot of the story at all, but it's a really clever device for indicating to us everything we need to know about the setting of this story. Of course, this is something Wolf is really a master of, right? We know that this machine is an artifact of our future and that the human civilization that built it, which is to say us, plus a few decades or or maybe a century has gone extinct and that there are sentient aliens who are investigating our planet and who even disbelieve the extent of our love of doing violence to one another in endless wars. Just this one little machine allows Wolf to get all of this information out immediately in a way that doesn't feel heavy handed, doesn't feel like he's addressing the reader with a world building note at the top of his story. 
the way Wolf embeds and weaves the world building throughout this story is incredible. And you're right to say that it does all begin with this sky yacht. And it raises a million questions about this world, which is all of these intelligent machines who still call the human masters are the only remnants of our own history. And this is a note that we get just at this point in the story where Quoquo arrives back at the station, Station 73, and he gets into a conversation with Don Deal, who is another cute little rabbit who is a biologist. Don Deal is a little shocked that Quoquo has taken one of the machines that have been left behind on Earth by the humans. And Quoquo responds that he was trying to learn something by talking to this machine. And besides, the human machines are way faster for getting around than his own people's machines. Dandil and Quoquo commiserate over how unhelpful the intelligent machines are in either of their endeavors, psychology and biology, though it's really Dandil commiserating and Quoquo being a bit of a jerk, which he really is in this story. Right. That, that's really the driving motive factor here in this story is that Quoquo is a jerk. Right. Uh, Quoquo notes here that the machines know only history and geography. And when he says geography here, he means that geography consists of place names and the history of unmotivated moving and fighting. For instance, the machines know nothing about why there is a Paris, France and a Paris, Texas. And they don't know what the connection between those places might be. You see, France is the country of Franks, of people who told and spoke the truth. And Texas is the land of friends, though it was inhabited by cannibals. And none of this makes sense to Quoquo or Don Deal, and they can't get the machines to explain it to them. Yeah, we've, we've seen this joke before, right? This joke is from a, a story by John V. Marsh, right? We, we just had this very recently in the fifth out of Cerberus. But this type of wordplay, of course, this is also something that Wolf loves to do. And of course, what he's doing here is using this to make strange, as you, as you like to point out, to show that, yeah, we do weird things and that an alien visiting our planet would be befuddled by these things. And so what all of this amounts to is that right at the beginning, we've got dad jokes and masterful world building. And basically, right, this is Gene Wolf's left hook and right jab combo. And he does all of this in a page. It's a lot of fun, and the tone of this story really remains at this level throughout the whole piece. And I think it's one of Wolf's most like fun and light stories. Well, Quoquo is engaging in a new experiment, and he wants to tell Don Deal about it. Most of the story plays out through dialogue. Quoquo's newest experiment is to discover the mindset of the people of the yellow leaves, one of the most primitive groups that he has learned about on the planet. They lived in the region of Cambodia that some of Quoquo's kind here are investigating. And these people of the yellow leaves held a unique superstition about something called feather tigers. When Quoquo says feather tigers, Don Deal's ears literally perk up. And that's because Don Deal has been recreating actual tigers in his lab. But what Don Deal can't piece together here is how the belief in feather tigers is connected to Quoquo's investigation into the disappearance of these intelligent species, the humans who once inhabited this world. 
there does seem to be a correlation between the disappearance of the other species of wildlife and the disappearance of the intelligent race of humans. The people of the yellow leaves, for instance, disappeared around the same time as the tigers did in that region. And of course, Quoquo isn't hoping that by Dondiel recreating tigers, the people of the yellow leaves will reappear. But he does want to achieve a sense of empathy with the people who held the superstition of the feather tigers. The people of the yellow leaves believed that real tigers could send forth their spirit when they were hunting their prey, and they could only be seen in the patterns of shadow and light cast by the plant life and the sun and the moon in the jungle. And these spirit castings were called feather tigers because they would disappear if the wind blew the way that a feather is blown away by the wind. Perhaps the intelligent species as a whole underestimated the true nature of its connection to the wildlife that surrounded it. And this is kind of a, a long freewheeling conversation that Quoquo and Dondiel are having. And this connection between populations and the wild animals around them is really a, a central theme of this story. But I want to point out here that we have a, a small group of hunter-gatherers living in the mountains and we have that juxtaposed with the ability to detach your spirit in order to go search around. And I feel like I have read that story written by Gene Wolfe before, right? This is a major feature of a story by John V. Marsh. So that's already the second parallel that we've had between this story and the fifth head of Cerberus. And I think that's really awesome. It's clear that this is something that was on Wolfe's mind here. I, I also do want to point out that the people of the yellow leaves are a, a real people. This is not an invention of Gene Wolfe's. Uh, it's a kind of nickname for the Malabri culture in Thailand and Laos and Cambodia. It's a real small community of forest nomads, as Wolf describes them here. The name Malabri just means forest people. And then the phrase Fai Tong Luang in Thai means people of the yellow leaves. And there have probably never been more than a few thousand Malabri at one time. But right now in 2019, as we're recording this, there are only a few hundred of these people left. So the, the story that Wolf envisions here may be playing out right now. And Wolf does point out some of the conflict between these people and the local, more developed population through this conversation. But now, Quo Quo wants to see the tigers that Dondiel has recreated. Quoco is surprised by the nature of the tiger's stripes and the patterns on the tiger's body. And he can see that Quoco has been able to recreate the tiger's physical appearance, but he questions whether or not Dondiel has been able to recreate the tiger's temperament. There are five tigers, and because the tigers seem docile, they're all in cages and they're purring here in the scene as they await their dinner, Quoquo does not find the tigers frightening at all. But Dondiel says that the tigers are efficient killers of the cattle they bring in to feed them. Quoquo is unconvinced by the ferocity of this creature. We get a real glimpse of Wolf the engineer here. He's quite interested in how you could go about recreating tigers after they've gone extinct. And what's happening here is that Don Dill is actually breeding house cats, selecting them for largeness and ferocity and perhaps, you know, strength of claws and teeth and that sort of thing. And then also doing some modification of their genes as he is breeding them. But Quoco is not convinced that just 
breeding and genetically modifying house cats is going to result in an actual tiger. But as you say, he's even more incredulous about the coloring of tigers, which I have to say is pretty rich coming from an overgrown blue space bunny, right? I think this is a joke that Wolf wants us to get here. Right. And and Wolf is also demonstrating the inability for these space bunnies to really understand like the history and wildlife and all of the natural wonder of Earth. They are really an alien species. And this is a great effect that Wolf puts into play here by reinforcing the alienness of these creatures while keeping the story so light. It's fantastic. Yeah. And embedded in this jokiness here, and even embedded in Wolf's engineering interest here is a a serious question of what exactly makes a tiger a tiger and this is very much the type of question that wolf likes to ask about what makes a person a person or how can we tell if a person is a person and not an animal as we get in both the fifth head of cerberus and also in sonia crane wesselman and kitty again this is a funny story here this is one of wolf's comedy stories but we are still getting these serious issues that we've seen him deal with in these much more hard stories that we've already covered. But as you say, it is also important here that Quoco is being a real jerk to Don Dill at this point, right? He doesn't really believe that Don Dill is bringing tigers back. And therefore, really, he thinks that Don Dill's work is pointless. And he doesn't hide this fact at all. He also refuses to be impressed by the tigers. And to say that even if they are just massive house cats, they would still actually be quite impressive. I happened to be doing my first read of this story this week while I was sitting on my couch. And I was reading these lines at the exact moment that our two kittens we just adopted began wrestling with each other in front of me. And I actually had to move out of the way in order to not get harmed by them. And I have to say, they are impressive purveyors of violence, you know, even though they only come up to my shins, right? I would be scared of them if they were 800 pounds. Yeah, Quoco is really arrogant, and he has a real sense of hubris, which is a character trait that we pick up on because of primarily the way he treats Don Deal and acts superior. He's out there talking to smart machines and trying to empathize with these cultures, and it's basically a lot of work of imagination that Quoco's engaged with. But Don Deal has actually recreated uh, a species from Earth in order to like actually explore some of the biology of the planet. And Quoco thinks that Don Deal's work is less important and is stupid compared to his work of basically going on a walkabout, which is what he does here at the end of the story. And Quoco doesn't even believe the information that he's learning from the human computers. So really, what is the point of Quoco's work at all? Quoco is the person who maybe is doing useless work in this story. Well, it's not long before Quoco leaves to go on this all-important journey to find a game trail in the jungle in order to get lost a little bit so that he can perhaps discover the feather tigers for himself. At first, Quoco can see no relationship between the shadows cast by the leaves and the trees in the jungle and the tigers that he has just seen with Dondiel. So he just doesn't believe that feather tigers are real, that and this phenomenon was possible at all. But soon, Dondiel calls Quoquo on his communicator. The tigers have escaped. They've burst from their cages during feeding time, and now they're loose in the jungle, and they followed the same path that Quoquo blasts through uh, in order to go on his journey. Dondiel asks Quoquo to report to him if he runs into any of these tigers, and Quoquo says that 
if any of the tigers interfere with him, he'll have to put them down. And it's just another case of this outrageous hubris that Quoquo possesses. Almost as soon as this call ends, Quoquo sees one of Dondil's tigers in the shadows and fires his blaster at them. The corridor of jungle where he shoots disappears in a sheet of flame. And I, I can't help but think this is, you know, Vietnam imagery that Wolf is uh, using here. Quoquo goes to investigate to see if any part of the tiger remains, but nothing is left behind but ash. He sees another tiger and shoots and kills it, and then a third and a fourth. But on seeing the fourth tiger, he realizes that at least some of the first three he thought were tigers that he killed were not real tigers. And now he's frozen in fear. He sees feather tigers, feather tigers everywhere. Quoquo screams and runs, and as he does, dark eyes, timid but bright with an intelligence not found in any animal, follow him from the depths of a thicket of yellowing bamboo. And this is the end of the story. What an end to this story. I mean, it's insane that Quoquo is just out here with his laser gun, just blasting at probably absolutely nothing here as he's succumbing to the the fear the the possibility that there might be tigers and therefore is seeing them everywhere but then we get this almost totally out of left field final line this this sense that there probably aren't any actual tigers there but there is something else and we're gonna we're gonna take up the question of what is that something else in the discussion but before we get to that question i want to start with a different plot question here which is simply the question of did the tigers really escape or is don Dale just pranking quoquo as a sort of vengeance for the jerky way that quoquo treated him in my reading of this story i don't think the tigers escaped at all if they had you know, they would have mauled, I think, the other bunnies in at Station 73. And I think this is all part of the psychological test that Quoquo is experimenting with. I think that Don Deal maybe doesn't hate Quoquo, but this is a way to actually make the test real, to force Quoquo to really empathize with these uh, people of the yellow leaves, which he's trying to do. And in a weird way, it's the most effective way to make the experiment work. So I don't think any tigers escaped. I think Quoquo was the wrong person to do this experiment because he can't be impartial when he returns. And they're like, never mind, the tigers didn't escape. Uh, But how did that experiment work for you? He won't be able to report the truth because he's too arrogant to and too prideful to admit how scared he was. I think he's he would burn the whole jungle down first and say he killed all the tigers rather than admit that he was afraid of them. But I, I don't think they escaped. And I think that this is kind of part of the theme of the story is this psychological experiment and how when you're out in the woods or in nature by yourself, how easy it is to succumb to what we today call superstitions. But when you have no other information, or even when you do, and you look up and there's the big sky and all these crazy trees and you're alone, a lot of things become more believable than they do when you're sitting in your house and there's no wildlife around. 
Yeah, we've all been to a zoo, right? And have said, oh, yeah, those tigers are pretty big, but like they're actually just laying there and aren't nearly as fierce as I've been led to believe in stories, except actually they are as fierce and in fact, fiercer, right? And what Quoquo learns here about himself, even if he will never, ever admit it to anyone else, is that there was part of him that knew that deep down that he could he could actually appreciate the the size and the ferocity of these creatures I'm with you. I don't think the tigers ever escaped either. I think that there are some clues to that in the way that Don Dill is talking. He talks about one of his assistants getting mauled by the tiger, but he's super callous about it. He says, what actually matters, the most important thing, is making sure that I get my tigers back unharmed as he's really kind of egging Quo Quo on to not just come running back. All of this feels like a, a joke. And frankly, it feels like the type of joke that soldiers play on each other. And we know that Wolf was a massive joker in his unit in Korea and his basic training unit as well. We know this type of soldier too. Uh, and yeah, I, I see Wolf here in the Dondil character for sure. Well, let's get to this last line of the story then, this question of what is up with these eyes? To whom do these eyes belong? Is this humans who have actually returned to the region now that there are tigers again? Is this connection between uh, a local human community and their local fauna, this sort of metaphysical connection that is proposed here, is that actually turning out to be legitimate? Or is it maybe that humans never actually went extinct and that quo quo species, these alien space bunnies, just think that there are no humans left because these humans have evaded their detection because they live in such a remote area? I think the key to understanding this is this final line of the story, which I'll read again here. Dark eyes, timid but bright with an intelligence not found in any animal follow him from the depths of a thicket of yellowing bamboo. This idea of the eyes that possess an intelligence not found in any animal really works on a number of levels to heighten the ambiguity here at the end of the story. I read this as the humans being extinct. And the reason why the eyes have this intelligence that is not found in any animal is because there are no eyes. It's reflection on raindrops on a leaf or something like that. It is Quoco's imagination running wild. It is him fully empathizing with this superstition of the people of the yellow leaves. And we know he's running at this point. So the eyes that are following him could really just be in his mind as he's terrified of what is behind him. But I think also, Glenn, you raise a really interesting question about whether or not bringing the tigers back has brought back the people somehow, whether there is this strange connection between the full ecosystem that people rely on uh, in order to live, even if it's unseen or unknown. It's strange that there's still so much plant life on this planet, but all wildlife seems to have gone extinct. And I can't think of a reason why that would be. All that's left are the machines and the and the plants. So it is possible that there are these uh, primitive people, as uh, Quoquo describes them in the story, still existing and evading the search of these space bunnies. Well, yeah, I want to take up that question here in just a minute, but I, I, I want to offer my reading of this line because 
I did not think that this line was given to us from the perspective of Quoquo. In fact, this story is not actually from Quoquo's perspective. There's an omniscient narrator here who is telling us that as Quoquo is running behind him, so he, which he cannot see, there are these eyes that have been watching him in the forest this whole time, and he didn't notice them, and he's not noticing them now, is my reading of this. So this is the narrator who is cluing us, the readers, in to the fact that there was something there that he could have noticed, an animal of some sort, that he did not. So I do think that this is supposed to be humans of some sort, but I myself, I'm not sure if it is that they have just reappeared because of some metaphysical relationship with the tigers, or if they have simply gone undetected. This ambiguity of the intelligence not being found in any animal could also be a reference to some sort of machine in the forest that is recording all of this stuff. Maybe humans and animals are not extinct. Maybe they have just left earth for some reason. And I think it's hinted at that there's been some kind of ecological catastrophe. Uh, But it could be that all of the humans and animals have just gone to another planet to live. I think your reading is really strong because it is an omniscient third person narrator, but it's a pretty, it's, it stays pretty close to Quoquo's perspective and point of view. And we don't see anything that Quoquo doesn't see or experience in this story. So that makes me wonder whether it's all in Quoquo's head too, as Wolf is trying to make a point about what it takes to really empathize with a superstition of a people who are different than you. Yeah, this is one that we'll just have to kick to the wolf pack and invite them to come to the forum and let us know how they read that line as well. If that's sort of wolf stepping out of the narrative voice to let us know something that his point of view character doesn't know or not. But yeah, let's talk about where the humans have gone. What has caused this human extinction, or at least this extinction that the alien space buddies perceive to have happened? The very opening of this story offers a critique of interminable war. And so immediately I'm I'm thinking that that's the the reason here is that there's been endless war, a series of endless wars as part of the Cold War, right? This is a a reference to Vietnam here that is happening in this part of the world as Wolf is writing this story. But Quoquo actually seems to have records that indicate a, a gradual extinction in conjunction with the destruction of ecosystems. But Quoquo says something here that I think is particularly interesting and relevant. He says to Don Dill that the Batwa people of the Congo Basin seem to have ceased to exist at about the same time that the lowland gorilla went extinct. And likewise, the French-speaking people of the lower Mississippi, which is to say Cajun and Creole people of Louisiana, also seem to have disappeared at the same time or really shortly after the extinction of the brown pelican. And this is the evidence that Quo Quo has to make his hypothesis that there is actually some kind of mystical or metaphysical relationship between local human communities and their important neighborhood fauna. So I guess the real question here for me, Brandon, is, is just what did you make of all of this? Do you think it was war? Do you think it was ecological catastrophe? Or as you've hinted already, do you think the humans just left and went to another planet with their brown pelicans and gorillas? I think because of the, the Vietnam imagery in this story, Wolf is making a point about both war and the ecological impact of war. And Quoquo's people are really bad at understanding these correlations between why the world is the way it is, between Paris, Texas and Paris, France, or the types of people who inhabited these lands. They seem to have a really odd sense of history, or they're not able to make sense of our history. 
so I think that it's a combination of war and its impacts on the local wildlife, the displacement of wildlife, the destruction of nature in order to create war machines or keep the war machine running is really what Wolf is talking about here. I, I think that this is a story about, you know, ecological collapse where the plants recovered, but all the people in wildlife were destroyed. But that doesn't help me understand why there are still plants, but no people or wildlife because you need all of it to exist in an ecosystem. So it's very curious to me and it could leave the door open for humans still being there on planet Earth, tending to the Earth in some strange way. And maybe there's wildlife too, but the bunnies just haven't been able to find it. Well, I think what Wolf was pointing to here though, right, is that what we have is that the biggest creature, the biggest animal in the region in, in, in all three of these regions, has gone extinct, and then so also have humans. There's there's no indication here that the whole ecosystem necessarily collapse, right? Always plants and insects are going to survive, even if large mammals and birds and reptiles are disappearing. I mean, this is the experience that we are going through right now, as we are living through what is called the sixth extinction, as massive numbers of species are, in fact, disappearing all over the, the planet. And in my reading of the story, that is Wolf's principal concern. We've seen him concerned about this before. IBEM is a great example of this, but there are other stories as well where Wolf is writing about how humans of his day, circa 1970, are destroying their environments and that that is going to come back and haunt humans as well. So uh, I read this as a cautionary tale. And hey, why not give us two things to be cautious about, take care of our environment, and also maybe don't just fight endless wars for no reason. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of IBEM in connection to this story, but that story also ends with this set of eyes kind of burning in the distance in the wilderness. And I wonder if it is this imagery that Wolf is returning to about intelligent life in some way, about the essential connection between the human species and its environment that we see at the end of IBEM, the importance of the light of life in the human character's eyes at the end of that story. And maybe something similar is going on here. It's a compelling way to read Wolf as he develops and builds imagery through his whole oeuvre as he's writing it. Yeah, that's a great connection. It also sort of suggests that Wolf gets this image in his mind and thinks of several stories he can tell from that image and does them and they're all great. Let's move into the last thing that I want to talk about here, which is the themes of identity and fear that we get in this story. Nothing in this story is quite what it seems to be. The alien bunnies aren't actually bunnies. They just look like bunnies to us. The tigers aren't really tigers. In fact, they're just overgrown house cats. And of course, they're are not, at least in our reading, there are not any actual tigers when Quoquo starts shooting at them. What are we supposed to take away from all of these things that aren't actually what they seem to be? In this story, we're looking at these multiple modes of reconstructing uh, history of uh, people. And I think why it has such a light tone is because Wolf is dealing with some really serious stuff in this story. He's really concerned about humans wiping themselves out through war and through the destruction of their own environment. And by giving us these bunny characters who have these really easy to identify motivations, it gives the story this strange effect where 
there are no humans, but like intelligent life lives on. And I don't know if that's supposed to fill us with hope or dread here. <laughs> if, the, if the only people left to recover our legacy as a species are these arrogant, hubristic space bunnies who can't even put two and two together, they're, they're kind of bumbling and they're kind of silly. And I think that that is part of the story. Maybe we ought to take some of these issues seriously and, and not treat them so lightly. But two, if we don't take them seriously and don't demonstrate meaningfully on a, on a large scale that they're important to us, we might not like who comes to recover our own past and our own history and our own legacy. And I think that's a piece of what is going on in this story. Well, I saw here in this story, this thematic connection with issues that are raised all throughout the fifth head of Cerberus as well. This question of what makes you what you are, or more importantly, what makes you what you think you are, what you say you are, this kind of relationship between a label and the object that that label indicates. I think that's something that clearly is on Wolf's mind when he's writing the fifth head of Cerberus, and I think is an idea that he's still playing with here as well. But I think he's pointing to something different here, where this question of identity is also wrapped up in actually being afraid of the labels that things have or identities. Quoquo gets so afraid of being told that there are tigers around that he starts shooting up the whole forest with his like blaster, his his wide angle, wide field ray gun that he has. And 20 minutes ago, he didn't even believe that these things were actually tigers. But now that he's been told they are tigers and they're loose and they've killed someone, things that are not true, he goes crazy with violence, a type of violence that he finds unimaginable when the computer tells him that we humans have also behaved that way, right? And so to me, I saw this as a real critique of not just Vietnam itself, though, yes, that for sure, but of the whole Cold War. I think for Wolf, the whole idea of the Cold War is about feather tigers. It is about seeing threats where there are none. And this to me really reads like Wolf, the veteran of the Korean War, who has come home and is living a perfectly great life in the Chicago suburbs with his beautiful family at this point, but maybe is wondering what that was for, what that was all about. And of course, then is watching this other war on TV that is has been going on for nine years, well, really almost 19 years, but the US involvement for nine years at the point of the writing of the story, and, and just sees that it's for nothing. It's not about anything. It is not the result of anything that is actually tangible, that it's all about labels and perceiving threats where in fact there are none. I think that's an excellent point, and I think you really nailed it here. The whole idea of kind of shooting at ghosts is a big theme of how these propaganda wars really function, of why we get involved and who the enemies are, and making sure there's always an enemy to fight against, and at the same time, making the individual believe that they are somehow morally superior than the enemy, and that that gives them an out when they are killing in order to defend their life or their way of life. I think that whole attitude is something that has left Wolf feeling exhausted, maybe at this point, with American politics and the American political discourse. And I mean, it still goes on today. Um, but I, yeah, there's definitely a connection here between the Cold War discourse and politics and shooting at feather tigers, where you become so afraid of the enemy that anybody can become a threat. And I think that's a great insight into the story. Well, I think that's a great note on which to bring this episode to a close. I'm Glenn McDorman. 
And I'm Brandon Buda. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think is going on with these eyes at the end. Let us know what you think has brought about the extinction or disappearance of human beings on this planet. We'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I, for one, would love to have somebody in the forum settle guns and I debate about this. I want to extend another opportunity for our listeners who aren't patrons to support our show on Patreon. It means the world to us. We have a lot of great content there. As we said, we'll be releasing the LF by Borges soon, which was a really great story. We have a lot of other great stuff there too. So if you've been thinking about becoming a patron supporter of our podcast, I'd like to encourage you to join on patreon.com under Clay Temple Media and really get some of those bonus episodes. Next time, we'll be covering the story Hour of Trust, which you can find in the collection The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and other stories. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.